we know that there is just a great amount of tension right now between the studio and the exhibition community. But as we've said before, Disney and movie theaters is a winning combination. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Russ Fisher, the editorial director of the Box Office Studios, and I'm joined by Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, and Rebecca Polly, the deputy editor of Box Office Pro. This week, we're going to talk about a few different things, starting with the uh, box office topping performance of Shang-Chi, which has repeated its dominance uh, and now has the highest hold of the pandemic. Uh, we're also going to look at Disney committing to theatrical exclusivity through the rest of 2021, which is great news. Uh, and then we've got a handful of uh, other major studio title announcements, some executive changes at Paramount, and one big movie that is now going day and date to theatrical and streaming, which is uh, not our favorite thing to hear, especially for me, given the title. We'll get to that in a moment. But first, a quick word from our sponsor. And actually, this sponsor is coming through the concession stand. Oreo Cookies has figured out a way to take a concession stand classic to the next level. That's right. It's Oreo popcorn, and it's popping up at theaters across the country. This new blockbuster treat is made with real Oreo cookie pieces, drizzles of Oreo-based cake, and drizzles of Oreo cream. What better way to welcome back moviegoers than with an amazing salty and sweet treat that combines America's favorite cookie and popcorn to create true movie theater magic. Want to taste a snack that's destined to be a hit for yourself? You can head over to oreopopcornsample.com for a complimentary sample of Oreo popcorn. Again, that's oreopopcornsample.com to get your complimentary Oreo popcorn sample today. Daniel, uh, let's talk about Shang-Chi and Marvel uh, coming back hot in uh, with this week's tally. What are we looking at? Another strong weekend here for Shang-Chi and the Legend of the Ten Rings. As we know, this title broke the box office record for any movie release over Labor Day weekend. It follows that up with a $35.8 million hold from 4,300 screens. That's a 53% drop, guys, in its second frame. As you mentioned earlier, Russ, that is the highest hold in the pandemic. When we compare it to other holds from Disney during this span, we had Black Widow, which actually opened higher at 80 million on a three-day uh, debut. Black Widow dropped 68% on its second weekend. That title was day and date on PVOD. Another day and date on PVOD title, Jungle Cruise, that dropped 55% in its second weekend. And then we had Cruella that actually dropped 49% in its sophomore frame. That's another one of those Disney PVOD titles. The outlier here being Free Guy from the 20th Century Studios banner from Disney, theatrically exclusive, that only dropped 35%. So a pretty decent trend here as we look at the difference in week two of titles that go day and date from Disney and titles that remain theatrically exclusive. And uh, Daniel, that's that's really interesting to me when you reflect back on something that, uh, that Sean Robbins had to say on last week's episode of the podcast, namely that the weekend after Labor Day tends to see just gigantic drops for nothing really to do with the films that come out, but just in a general sense, end of summer, people going back to school. Yeah, no, it was uh, actually a better hold, as we were mentioning, than Black Widow. Black Widow that went out with 25.8 million in its second weekend. This actually coming in $10 million higher 
than a title that let's let's face it just had a higher profile for this genre. So it's an interesting bit of data here. The film has now grossed over $150 million domestically. The global total is 257.6 million. Now, a big asterisk here is that the title has not secured a Chinese release date yet, so it probably won't hit those global heights that something like, say, a Fast 9 has been able to do on the market. And meanwhile, we've also got uh, we've got Malignant, uh, James Wan's new movie from Warner Brothers. Uh, what did we look at there? So that's a third place opening with 5.5 million. This is James Wan's lowest opening weekend since 2007. This is the helmer of huge franchises for Warner Brothers. As we know, Warner Brothers, with this release date, this same weekend, they've been able to launch huge titles like It, like The Nun. They've done very, very well in this corridor this year with one of their top directors in the genre, with a day and date debut on HBO Max, the title opens at 5.5 million in third place behind Free Guy's fourth weekend, Free Guy actually grossing 5.8 million in week four, and only slightly ahead, Malignant only slightly ahead of Universal's Candyman in its third weekend, Candyman coming in with 4.8 million in week three. So this is uh, definitely a, let's face it, a disappointment for a formula that has worked for this studio. Uh, I think as we've mentioned in recent weeks on the day and date strategy, some Warner Brothers titles get a big marketing push, others get totally ignored. Zip. You know, for I've life. seen very little yeah. from, from marketing from Malignant and, and it's not, I mean, granted, the, the Nun was part of the pre-existing Conjuring universe. It, everyone knows. Also created by James Wan. Yeah, and and uh, it, you know, everyone kind of is familiar with this, with the with the property. Um, Malignant, you know, I I don't really kind of know what it's about, or it's difficult to know that because it's not based on existing IP, and there really hasn't been a ton of marketing. Anecdotally, it's gotten some some chatter uh, among the people who I talk with, but I, I definitely get the sense that most of them watched it on HBO Max. Russ, you're also a big horror guy. What What's your take on, on this performance? Yeah, I mean, I think that Malignant's performance is disappointing, no question. Uh, I, I would agree with Rebecca that I think awareness was unusually low for the title. I think there was high awareness amongst existing fandoms, amongst horror uh, crowds overall. Certainly saw a lot of talk about the movie this weekend, uh, and for good reason. It's It's got like, you know, this kind of bonkers third act that that is exactly the sort of thing that activates that audience, which uh, includes me. But uh, yeah, it just, it wasn't out there. It wasn't promoted in the way the Conjuring movies were. I would really compare this probably most to another film from one, which would be the first Insidious, uh, for which I don't have figures in front of me, but in terms of what it is, it's an original IP. It's kind of his... Uh, almost taking a break from bigger movies, in this case, uh, you know, the Aquaman films. And it, it seems like even with the relatively low performance of Malignant, I can see this being a franchise starter in a way. But, um, you know, we'll see where that goes uh, over over the years. And uh, not so much a franchise starter. We had the specialty release of Paul Schrader's The Card Counter. Schrader, not so much a, a franchise guy. This is one that I have seen a fair amount of marketing on. Daniel, 
within the the bounds of the screen count, it, it actually did pretty pretty solid business this weekend. I think we're in that L.A. New York film bubble, which is also part of the L.A. New York Paul Schrader fan club. That we are all honorary members when we start working uh, on on film journalism. They basically. give you the card at your first film screening. Yeah, basically. Screening. Yeah, yeah, a couple of film comment essays from the nineteen seventies, and we're good. We are all the card counters. <laughs> So the card counter opening with uh, 1.1 million from only 530 screens driven by Los Angeles and New York City. That's the second highest specialty debut of the year behind Roadrunner's $2 million debut. Roadrunner being the Anthony Bourdain documentary, the controversial Anthony Bourdain documentary. There was, I think, a, a lot of chatter there also in the LA and New York City markets. Both these films from Focus Features. Both these films, I don't think, would have even been released had we not had L.A. and New York. I think it's a, it's a good bit of momentum as we start hearing reports out of Telluride as these Toronto Film Festival reviews come in. Press screenings for the New York Film Festival start next week. Guys, award season is back. Film festival titles are back. I'm hearing a lot of things out of Venice. Rebecca and I are excited to, to finally watch the, the new Almodovar in advance sometime this week. Well, how are you guys feeling finally coming into the fall after skipping this for basically almost two years? It feels like we just did this, <laughs> which we did <laughs> because of the delayed Oscars. Um, I, I feel kind of like I'm not ready, but no, I'm, I'm excited to see some films that maybe haven't we haven't been talking about for the past year. I'm excited, uh, excited for the eyes of, of Tammy Faye. That's one that I'm, that I'm looking forward to, but you know, we'll see. It's, it's, I'm, ex I've gone to movies in the last two weeks more per volume than I have the entire previous part of the year before that. So I'm, I'm feeling like I'm ready to get revved up. You know, I saw Shang-Chi and Dolby. I saw the green Knight at my, my local independent theaters. So it feels nice to kind of have that momentum going personally and to have new films to meet that momentum. I think it's, uh, there's something there that, that Daniel said, which is really the fact that it's just nice to have movies that uh, seem new. You know, I'm pretty over looking at the same synopses and trailers and images of movies that we've been uh, waiting for releases uh, of for the past two years. And, yeah. you know, that's nobody's fault but the virus. No offense to No Time to Die, but... <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> it, is, movie already. it is long past time to die. Let's yeah. do it already. Uh, it's, you know, yeah, it's just nice to have a whole crop of, of new work uh, from filmmakers that I like, uh, starring actors that I like, and to be back in the potential of being surprised. Like, I feel, and I think, honestly, that that purely anecdotally, I feel like that accounts for some of the success of Shang-Chi in that it does feel like something new and like it has the potential for surprise where Black Widow, for example, no longer seemed to have that. And uh, we'll see if Eternals benefits from the same sensibility or the same promise. Uh, but yeah, that's that's the big thing out of the festivals for me right now. And speaking of Shang-Chi, you have to imagine that the success Disney has had in the theatrically exclusive release that that film got played a role in some big news that we got uh, close to the end of the day last Friday. Namely, they are giving theatrical exclusivity to the remaining 2021 slate. 
Um, Encanto, an animated children's film, is getting that 30-day window before going to Disney+. Plus. For the other films that we have coming up, uh, that's including Ron's Gone Wrong on October 22nd, another children's film, October 15th, the Ridley Scott period drama The Last Duel, starring Ben Affleck and Matt Damon, I believe. Of course, Eternals, MCU, uh, and West Side Story and The King's Man, both films that have been delayed a lot. Um, those are getting 45-day theatrical releases. Um, it's it's wonderful news. It's a big deal considering Disney up to this point has been very piecemeal and very uh, hesitant to commit to one particular approach for theatrical exclusivity. So, um, you know, guys, I was you see that email come in about Disney release uh, release change news, and you kind of uh, you know see your life flash before your eyes a little bit. But this one was good. <laughs> You exhale a little bit once you once you get to read this news, right? It was, uh, I think, a big relief. We were all very anxious to hear what was going to happen. And we know that there is just a great amount of tension right now between the studio and the exhibition community. But as we've said before, Disney and movie theaters is a winning combination. It's a combination that makes financial sense for both parties. Um, I'm glad that Disney has been able to look at the data that they've collected over the past year and has found the confidence heading into the fourth quarter, heading into winter months to go theatrically exclusive on some titles. That 45-day window that Rebecca mentions was phrased as a minimum 45-day exclusivity window. So who knows, with something like West Side Story, if we see those holdover weeks perform quite well, that might extend a little bit more. But hey, we are seeing this... Uh, New trend, as we've mentioned, that the theatrical window is shrinking, has shrunk, and it's probably going to end in that 30 to 45 day period for big titles and between 17 and 30 days for more specialty releases. And, and further shoring up Disney's kind of renewed confidence that the market will be somewhat stable over the back half of 2021. We do have some dates for upcoming Disney releases that were undated. Uh, that includes Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley, uh, previously dated on December 3rd of this year. Uh, now it's coming out December 17th. Not a huge change. This is one I'm really excited about. I'm a huge fan of del Toro and the noir film. This is a remake of. It's just really spectacular, and I encourage everyone to seek it out if they can. And the big change there, Rebecca, actually, is that that December 3rd release was supposed to be limited. It's now going wide on the 17th. I think that really, that's a two-week push, but it's also a push to more theaters. You know, and Nightmare Alley is is one of a, a part of, it used to be a thriving subgenre, and it no longer is. And that is um, adult dramas set in circuses. So <laughs> pumped for that comeback. In that respect, it's very much uh, it's very appropriate as uh, Guillermo del Toro's follow up to The Shape of Water, of course, the Oscar winning Best Picture winning Shape of Water, still probably the least likely Best Picture winner we're any of us likely to see in our lifetimes. But uh, yeah, I like the confidence that this indicates coming out of Disney uh, with this one. I was a little bit worried when it had that uh, when it had that staggered limited and then maybe wide release. And this to me says that uh, at least Disney feels like they know how to market the movie. Uh, whether that means they're truly confident in it uh, remains to be seen. 
We also have a 20th Century Studios animated film, Bob's Burgers, based on the popular television show that has been in the works for a long time, has been dated for May 27th of next year. Their uh, live-action remake of The Little Mermaid um, has been given that May 26, 2023 release date. And then moving on to other studios, at Warner Brothers, uh, there is going to be a new film adaptation of Stephen King's Salem's Lot to be released on September 9th, 2022. And Mad Max Fury Road prequel Furiosa, starring Anya Taylor-Joy, has been moved back roughly a year from June 23rd, 2023 to late May of the following year. Um, you know, that's a film I'm, I'm looking forward to. Sorry to see it get pushed back a year, but at this point, I'll let George Miller do whatever he thinks is best, and I will blindly follow him to the ends of the earth. So that's it for our either good or, in the case of Furiosa, let's say maybe value-neutral release date news. Um, unfortunately, Russ, I know you alluded to this earlier, we do also have a, a negative bit of news surrounding a, a horror franchise beloved by definitely yourself, all of us, all of us here. Yeah, uh, the new Halloween movie, Halloween Kills, once again directed by David Gordon Green, who also helmed the 2018 sequel, Halloween. Halloween being the sequel to the movie Halloween. Halloween Kills, still coming out on October 15th, which is good, uh, is now day and date on Peacock and theatrical on October 15th, which is less good. And uh, it's not even a premium Peacock view. This is, uh, if you subscribe to Peacock, you can watch Halloween Kills on October 15th at home. So, uh, you know, we can go around in circles about what that really means. I think one of us in chat uh, last week made the point that there, this may indicate some uh, fallout from the competitiveness for premium large format screens around that time. Uh, and I don't know, Daniel, Rebecca, do the two of you have other thoughts about what is behind that release uh, strategy shift? I think the the premium large format conversation doesn't exactly fit in here, personally. If we look at that 2018 slate that Universal had, Halloween was released during a period where they were vying for premium screens pretty much every weekend. I think it came in, what, 7, 14 days after the debut of First Man, which was also getting those IMAX screens, those premium large format screens. So there's always been a lot of traffic there. Halloween from David Gordon Green is a film that has experienced that traffic and has done well despite that competition from premium large format. I think what we're looking at here when we compare Universal's decision to move this to Peacock, as opposed to Disney moving its entire remaining slate for the year to theatrical exclusivity is the difference between making a move based on confidence and data and making a move based on desperation. Peacock is a streaming app that has struggled immensely to get on people's radars. The Olympics was a draw, the Olympics are over. Uh, exactly, uh, they have other draws. They have the, the English Premier League, one of the biggest soccer leagues in the world, which means that I will subscribe to it while they have those rights. They've had uh, big blockbuster TV shows like The Office, but by and large, it's not really one of the streaming apps that capture part of the cultural conversation. That's a big problem for a parent company like Comcast, which is a company that before Peacock was really living and dying by the performance of cable subscriptions. If we compare the move 
that Universal is making this late into the game with both the Boss Baby sequel that came out, what was it, a, a month or so ago, also going day and date on Peacock. We compare that with a decision of Warner Brothers at around late fourth quarter 2020, saying its entire slate in 21 was going day and date on HBO Max. It's a tale of two corporate parents. AT&T, the corporate parent, obviously having a huge investment on, guess what? Satellite television subscriptions with their acquisition of DirecTV. These are businesses that aren't working. You can call these release models innovative all you want. The fact is, these movies aren't making nearly as much money. In some cases, like Warner Brothers, they're providing an economic lifeline to theaters during the toughest months of the pandemic. But Universal's Peacock missed that boat. That train left the station already. Theaters are back. Theaters are earning money. This seems like too little, too late in the life cycle of the viability of drumming up interest on a streaming app. And guys, again, it doesn't really seem that innovative when the guys behind cable subscriptions and satellite TV subscriptions come up with these plans. It has to have an impact on the performance of this individual film. I mean, there's a big difference between pushing a family comedy like Boss Baby to day and date on Peacock versus an R-rated horror film. I mean, I, I just can't imagine that's going to work as well. And I imagine that that's going to have a bigger impact on this specific film that it's coming out day and date. But, you know, uh, we'll see about that one. We spent the top of this episode talking about Malignant. And I think that Malignant is possibly the, the closest point of comparison to uh, the eventual future for Halloween Kills. You know, now granted, Halloween Kills has much larger built-in awareness by virtue of being uh, the only, you know, there are three major 1980s horror franchises, even though one of them, Halloween, began in the 70s. Uh, you know, there's Halloween, Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street. The only one of those that's still going theatrically right now is Halloween. It's done well. It still has big awareness. There's a lot of uh, marketing and merchandising and other ancillary stuff that goes on connected to Halloween, especially at this time of the year, which is great. But, uh, you know, so I would expect that we're going to see Halloween perform better than Malignant. But unfortunately, I think that, uh, yeah, I agree. Uh, I would expect to see this decision hobble uh, Michael Myers a little bit. And, you know, maybe Jamie Lee Curtis is the one who's going to be happy about that. Can't keep Michael Myers down. No, and this is a franchise, guys, that, as Russ well noted, really came of age in the 1980s with that VHS boom for horror sequels, where the theatrical release played a part, but it was really in that video rental marketplace where a lot of these horror titles flourished. And Halloween becoming the most, I think, if I'm not mistaken, it was the most successful independent production of all time when it was released in 1978. And it went from that to being really an afterthought in a niche of just video rentals. So getting that IP and reviving that IP through all its sequels, time and time again, we saw that happen with Dimension uh, from the Weinstein Company. Now that has gone over to Universal through Blumhouse. They've put a lot of effort in bringing this prestige back to Halloween, claiming it back as a top IP for theaters. It seems like they're losing momentum and going yeah. backwards with a decision like this. There's an intentionality behind we are not going to treat this like a the shock franchise 
that it has at times turned into. We're getting Jamie Lee Curtis back. David Gordon Green is obviously a, a wonderful filmmaker. Absolutely. I think there's been a big, big interest in making this a top title, a banner franchise for Universal. I think they're blurring the lines now, Rebecca, with just looking at this as another horror sequel that you can watch at home. And I, I have to go back, and this is a very different type of movie, guys, but I think this is a good uh, case study as to what some of these decisions can lead to. Back in January, the hottest new title on the market was Coda. Out of Sundance, it's a, it's a very broad playing title, a very accessible title about a family uh, that is both in English and in American Sign Language, groundbreaking title, had a lot of fantastic press. Apple came in to acquire this title for a record fee out of Sundance. Were either of you aware this thing came out theatrically on August 13th? No, you, you asked me this at the end of the week and you said, has had Coda come out yet? And I, I don't think so, but it had. It just came and came and went, and it was there was very little by way of marketing. I mean, this was this was a movie Apple spent a lot of money on. Now, anecdotally, uh, I was able to, to to check in with some independent exhibitors. Individual screenings have performed rather well at independent cinemas, but looking back at the data from our parent company, the box office company's Showtime dashboard, it looks like at its height, Coda only went out to a hundred and one cinemas in the United States, that's not a significant theatrical release for something that could have easily made $20 million if Fox Searchlight released this in its sleep. Focus features can forget about this title, put minimal effort, it still walks out with 20 million and at least hits 500 uh, locations. For me, I think this has to be looked at as a case study of a great acquisition being outdone by a myopic release strategy in just optimizing a home release rather than looking at the whole life cycle of a film. And that's even more, I mean, potentially that has uh, more dire ramifications for Halloween Kills because it's the second in a trilogy and they've already committed to doing Halloween Ends. So, I mean, Coda, Coda is a one-off, but Universal has investment in the Halloween franchise and they, they could kind of be uh, shooting themselves in the foot here. But we'll see. Now, we've spoken about uh, a lot of different news from a lot of different studios on this episode. Uh, we got some Disney going on. We got some Warner Brothers going on. We got some Universal going on. The uh, last studio to, to get in the news over the last week, albeit for different reasons, is Paramount. Um, Daniel, there's been a, a substantial executive shakeup. So that is Jim Janopoulos exiting Paramount Pictures with Brian Robbins taking over as chairman and CEO at the studio in the coming months. A big change there. We will track to see if it means bigger changes for Paramount, which released its own streaming platform or actually rebranded its parent company's streaming platform to Paramount Plus earlier this year. Rebecca Ross, thank you so much for joining me again. It's been a, a great time here chatting talking about industry news to our listeners. We will be back once again on Thursday next week to go over the latest news in the theatrical exhibition business. The Box Office Podcast is produced by Box Office Pro in collaboration with The Box Office Company and Record Edit Podcast. Thanks again for listening. Mm -hmm.